Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Uh, you guys enjoy the snow this week? Yes? Yep. So, I, I, my, I, I wonder if my kids hate when I talk about them. Probably. I'm looking for them somewhere around here. Anyway, uh, my, uh, my soon-to-be 17, oh my word, in weeks, uh, is our youngest. Um, he went sledding, which was great, um, with his friends this week. And he was waiting, and he had the snowball as I was clearing off the car in the driveway with my shovel, and he had the snowball that he threw at me, not recognizing I had a shovel. <laughs> you don't mess with dad that way, you know what I mean? Because if you don't know me, if you play a prank on me of some sort, I think of the most extreme way possible to get you back. And so the snowball that, by the way, didn't hold together whatsoever was met with a shovel of snow. Yeah, scored one for dad. Anyway, we enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. My, my, my life rule that I have no control over is there has to be one day a year where everything is like shut down and you just have to stay at home and look out the window and watch snow fall. And so check for, for this year. So hopefully everybody enjoyed it. Thanks to those of you who, uh, especially our trustees, who um, tried to make this as safe as possible to, to get around with today. Uh, just a few verses we're looking at from the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but last week we talked about our bodies, and this week we want to uh, talk about our soul. Throughout the morning, uh, I want to use this refrain uh, that Brian sung about, that Jane read uh, from Psalm 62, verse 5. It says, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Uh, the NRSV, another version, says, For God alone my soul in silence waits. I like that version a little bit more, but that I want to invite us to kind of have in the back of our minds and our hearts as a refrain this morning. My soul finds rest er, in God alone. My soul in silence waits for God alone. Let's talk about the soul just for a few minutes uh, because often what we think about when we talk about the term soul or the idea of soul when it comes to the Christian faith, most of the time we think about it in a disembodied way. And so what we want to do from last week is take that idea of the sacredness of the body that God has given us both now and will, will give us in resurrected bodies and translate that, bring that along with us in the idea of the soul because souls are not disembodied things. We are embodied souls. It's not that the soul is separate from the body, but uh, the soul finds its home within the body. Sometimes we talk about that in Christianity in a very disembodied way, and it's not very helpful. Um, sometimes we talk about Jesus saving our soul as if it has nothing to do with our bodies or our minds or the other parts that Jesus talks about um, our, our existence. Uh, we talk about Jesus saving our souls if somehow it's disconnected from the body. We talk about our soul going to heaven when we die. We imagine heaven in terms more of a soul in this kind of like, oh, sort of thing rather than a physical state. 
Uh, so the church could grow, I think, in our imagination and our understanding of um, this, what this physical heavens and earth is going to be like, the eternity towards which we're moving, and actually probably the eternity which is moving towards us, maybe better said. But thinking about it in a more physical way than this disembodied sort of way. And so when we think of soul, it's not disembodied whatsoever. It has to do with the flesh and blood, the stuff of, of life. Souls too often separated from the body. But what I want to suggest this morning is that tending to life in our bodies, so again, bringing that idea from last week, is intimately connected to our soul. And so as we tend to our bodily existence, we tend to our soul. Jesus helps us name and understand the different aspects of our lives uh, as he talks about the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Strength is just another word for our, our bodies. I want to think about each one of these terms, heart, soul, mind, and strength, because uh, sometimes we don't have a great way to think about these things. So let's think about heart, soul, mind, and strength and how they're related, because they are. So the heart isn't a mushy thing. It's like, oh, you have such a good heart. It's, it's not that. It, heart has substance to it, has grit to it. It's a way that uh, the Bible talks about our will. So when the, the Bible talks about heart, the Bible is not just talking about, oh, the feely kind of part of us. No, they're talk, the Bible is talking about what we will into the world, what we will into the world. Our hearts are continually transformed by God, which then means that our, what, is, what is being transformed is what are, we are willing into the world. And we learn more and more of this as we grow and mature in faith. We learn more and more, and we become the kind of people that more and more naturally will the will of God. That's kind of the goal. As we mature in the Christian faith, we begin to will the will of God in some ways without thinking about it because it has become a part of us. We've been transformed, uh, our hearts have been transformed, and therefore our wills have been transformed. So our heart then, or our will, is formed then by the things that we think about, our minds. Uh, if we're not careful in our day and our age, uh, we can never give our minds a break, right? They can go all the time because there's always stimulus for the mind, isn't there? There's always something to think about. Um, there's, there might be kids running about the house or things that you have to be doing at work. Um, there are also choices that we have to make. Do we really, uh, are, are we going to open the app again and continue to thumb through and deaden or, or make our mind run and run and run and run? Are we going to give our minds a rest, uh, give them a break? Are we going to turn the news off for a while, maybe? Um, if there's one takeaway, maybe, for the day, there you go, turn the news off for a while. Um, but our minds then impact our will because those are the things that we think about. Our strength then is our body and the way we live out what our minds meditate on and what our hearts will. And so what we meditate on influences, impacts the direction of our will, all of this embodied in our bodies. So what's the soul? The soul, very simply, is the sum of the heart, the mind, and the strength. The soul is shaped by what we meditate on. It is shaped 
by the things that we will, and it's lived out in our bodies. See, if you want to put the graphic that's up there, one way that I think about the soul is kind of the center point of, of who I am or who we are, the center point of ourselves. Uh, center is, is just a very helpful way to think about things. Um, I, I use pottery for about metaphor for everything, right? But when you have center, you can work with a piece of clay, right? If things are off-center, then the whole thing's going to be off-center. The whole piece is going to be off-center, and it takes work to get the piece centered. But the soul is the center of the person, center of the person. Uh, It has different experiences, and the Psalms are great ways to talk about the experience of the soul. And so uh, we talked about rest for the soul in in what we sung about this morning. But Psalm 42, also one of my favorite psalms, because it gives me language for what's happening in my soul when my soul isn't doing so well. Psalm 42 asks, why, my soul, are you so downcast? So the soul can be downcast, not only at rest, but downcast. It asks, why so disturbed within me? The psalmist goes on to say, put your hope in God. Because when we hope in other things, when we get off-center, when our souls get off-center, we are disturbed inside. Our hope is placed upon something else. And so downcast and disturbed and troubled, those things are, are ways of, actually, we can think about both describing the state of our soul, but we can also think about them invitationally, an invitation to center our souls back again on God. This is what the psalmist says. This is what you might be experiencing. You might be experiencing downcast. You might be experiencing a troubled soul. But put your hope in God because that is where our center comes from. And so the the psalm for today gives us another invitation. Again, for God alone, for God alone, my soul waits in silence, for my hope comes from him. I think probably all of us know, I think deep down we know, like we know, we feel it, we know it, what it's like to have a soul at rest, don't we? Like we know what it's like to have a soul at rest. And we also know what it's like to not have a soul at rest. Rest is God's desire for us. And this rest does not come from, it's not circumstantial rest. It doesn't come from everything going right in life. It doesn't come from Zen-like circumstances where everything is at peace and everything is all right with the world. This kind of rest comes from remaining in me, as Jesus says, or hoping in God, as the psalm says. Now, it would be nice if this would be an ideal that we could attain, right? If rest is this some state that we could stay in, and, and, and then the goal of our life is just to find this place of rest and never move from it. But that, at least, has not been my experience or the experience of anybody I've ever met in life. I realize I'm limited, but nonetheless, um, it's not a place that we can attain. It's, it's not as if you're sitting there and thinking, well, how can I attain this rest this week? The idealism doesn't really help our situation because it's important to remind ourselves that we live in a world that is hostile to us and hostile to God and hostile to the things of God. And so while God desires for us to have rest the way the world is, the way the world works does not lend itself towards rest. And we can't get out of the world. We can't escape from the world. 
And so this idealism, like we're going to live from this place of rest, we're going to have it 100% of the time, isn't a realistic thing. And actually, I think we get discouraged in our faith when we think, oh, I'm not experiencing this rest because we think, oh, somehow we can avoid all the things that are going on in the world. We can't. We can't avoid the things that are going on in the world. Our souls literally are under, and I'm not over-spiritualizing this, but they are attacked regularly. We're not, in, we're not in a void where we're just not impacted by anything. We're impacted on, by what the world, what's going on in the world around us. We're impacted by what goes on within us, right? The things that we think about, the things that we do, the, the times that we fail, all those things we are impacted by. Now, none of that means that we can't find rest in God. The constant invitation is to find rest in God, but it is to say that this is going to be a push and pull. This is going to be, this is going to be work. This is going to be war in some ways to find rest. And I realize war and rest is kind of a weird thing to talk about, but So rest is something that God desires for us, but it's also something that is constantly under attack. And this is the situation in Corinth in the verses that we're going to look at this morning. And uh, before we get into the verses themselves, I want to give a little bit of context to the city of Corinth itself, because the place impacts how we think about what Paul is saying. So Corinth is a city. Uh, it's a complicated place with a complicated history. Uh, in the 140s BC, it was leveled and destroyed, and in, in 44 BC, it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar. Um, this is this is where elementary school comes back to me again. It wasn't it wasn't a port city. It, I don't even know if I'm going to sound this right. It was an isthmus, right? Anybody remember what an isthmus is? And so there. If, if not, this is what Wikipedia told me this week. Um, the isthmus is this, this small strip of land that divides uh, two, two bodies of water. And, so, and it's just a fun word to say. So it was an isthmus. And uh, what would happen is, is crews would come, these ships would come, and they would unload in this town, drag their stuff off to the other side. The ships would then sail around, reload, and those kinds of things. But what it meant was that this city was very transitory. And so there would be these sailors that would be coming through Corinth regularly, dragging their stuff in, making a pit stop for however long it might be, and then leaving again. So it was a rootless city. There was no history there. You know, we think of Lancaster County, we think of, you know, family. I've, I've grown up here, my, parent, my, my dad grew up here, my grandparents grew up here. There's some history of generations to it. That wasn't the, that wasn't the case uh, in Corinth. It was a multicultural place where uh, people didn't grow up. It was, what do they say, Every, um, everybody who lives here wasn't from here. That was kind of those sorts of thing, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, you could kind of think of it as a chaotic place like the gold rush in the, in, in the western part of the U.S. back in that day. 1,800 feet high above the city sits this tower or this temple to the goddess of Aphrodite, which you might recognize as the Greek goddess of love. And so there's temples that are all throughout Corinth. So in addition to the goddess of love, there's also Asclepius, the god of healing, Greek god of healing, um, Isis, the, the Egyptian goddess of seafarers, and Poseidon, the Greek god of seafarers. Uh, they would use this term, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, 
Corinthiazane. Corinthiazane, yep. Which means to live like a Corinthian. You're going to be a Corinthiazane. This is Greek. Um, which, <laughs> how would you like to have this, this moniker? Uh, it, it meant to live like this, meant to be a person of debauchery. You, know, you want... I wonder how people would describe Lancastrians, but Corinthianes, they were people of debauchery. And debauchery actually, in the Greek, means a life of emptiness. So it's not just sexual in nature, but it's all the ways that you live in and make choices that are empty. Um, Paul shows up in this city after a really hard go in ministry. Um, so he's, he's suffered and then he, he feels led to go to the city. And this is the biggest city he's ever been to. If you can imagine, the gospel hasn't taken root here, as far as we can know. And so him and maybe a handful at most of other people are coming into this highly sexualized city with all of these different gods from, from the, the Greek world. And he's coming as a tent maker, not knowing anybody. And this is the biggest city at that, the, the largest city he had faced at that time. David Pryor, uh, in his commentary, says it this way, if the love of Christ Jesus could take root in Corinth, the most populated, wealthy, commercially-minded, and sex-obsessed city in Eastern Europe, it must prove powerful anywhere. And so Paul does that. He goes into the city, and we have these letters from the Corinthians because it actually does take root there. But if you can imagine being a person who is just is rootless, has been influenced by all of these Greek mythology, Greek gods, and the gospel, either both Judaism or Christianity, which would have been maybe two decades old at the most at that point. You haven't heard of these things. You're hearing them for the first time, and a church is springing up in the midst of this. You can understand that as Paul is writing into this, this is a mess. Like, can you imagine trying to pastor a people in this kind of city that don't have a history with faith at all by writing letters? Like, it's complicated and it's hard. So part of this is pastoral. What Paul is trying to do is help them to learn how to follow Jesus in the Corinthianizing sorts of places that they live in. So in the verses that we're going to look at, 29 through 31, uh, chapter 7 begins this way. Paul says, now for the matters that you wrote about. And so he's responding to some questions that they've had, um, that the Corinthians have had, as they're trying to figure out what it means to live as followers of Jesus in the context of Corinth. How might they maintain their soul in Corinth? How might we maintain our soul in our time and our place? So a few verses from the, uh, that come to us from the lectionary this morning. And it feels like we're just dropping in, and we are, but we'll think about it together. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. What is happening? I feel like I have like this musical interlude every once in a while over here that is not timed very well. Um, but let me say this, brothers and sisters, that the time remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or who rejoice or buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them, for this world as we know it will soon pass away. 
Paul uh, begins with these words of urgency. The time is very short. He ends by saying the world as we know it will soon pass away. Urgency, particularly within our culture, produces anxiety, doesn't it? And sometimes the church can also use uh, urgent language to produce uh, or try to create a spiritual crisis or a sense of anxiety. But here's one of the things I want to suggest this morning. The urgency of the gospel never leads us to a place of anxiety, but to a place of rest. The urgency that we see in the gospel, the choices that we have to make, that God is inviting us to make, never lead us to a place of anxiety, but to a place of rest. The invitation of God is continually to a place of rest. If you look at the other lectionary readings uh, this morning that are listed there, and you can do this at home, there's a reading from Jonah, there's a gospel reading. Uh, All of these readings talk about turns that people are making, turns of repentance or turns of obedience, and there's some urgency to them. But the urgency leads to a place of rest. It doesn't lead to a place of anxiety. At the end of creation, we have Sabbath, and Sabbath really ought to help frame our understanding of how we were meant to live, because Sabbath is a place of rest, and it's a way of resting that trusts everything is complete in God. So to live a Sabbath way of life, a Sabbath existence, is to trust that everything is complete in God. This is not hands-off. This isn't inactivity in any stretch of the imagination. But this is acting in whatever we do from a place of rest. Not a place of anxiety, that we, which is pretty much the way we learn how to function in this world, but a place of rest. So it's not inactivity, but it's learning to be active from a place of rest or place of Sabbath. This is the way of God, the way of peace, the way of rest. The opening chapters of Genesis, as well as the New Testament book of Hebrews, describe it to us as a Sabbath way of being. And the psalm reminds us again, yes, my soul, find rest in God, for my hope comes from him. The world, on the other hand, I don't have to tell you this, moves at a frenetic pace and forces us, I think, to feeling like we have to make decision after decision after decision after decision. I would describe the world as being uh, in a place in a state of perpetual panic. And this is the kind of thing that is passing away, I think Paul says. This world and the way that it functions, this stage and age of anxiety and fear will not be forever. It's passing away, which actually, I think, almost makes those induced by it more fearful and more anxious because it's not working like it's supposed to. But that kind of thing is passing away. So Paul uses urgent language to describe the urgency of following Jesus. We're not meant to be Corinthianes. We're not to be empty. We're not uh, meant to be chasing thing after thing after thing. We're meant to be people at rest. Remember, these passages come to us in the context of Epiphany, in the season of Epiphany, which is a revelation and a revealing of God. And in in this way, I think this is one of the things that the, the church and the people of God can reveal to the world is a way of being and acting and living that is not induced and, and, and taking the bait of anxiety and panic all the time, but operates and can operate from a different space and different place of rest. Again, the psalmist says, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him.
Paul goes on to say in verse uh, 29 into 30, so from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or rejoice or buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use things in the world should not become attached to them. Uh, These words are super confusing if you think about them as things to do, right? The biblical literists out there could take this out of context and be like, I don't have to worry about being married anymore? Great, right? But this is not the way we're supposed to take this passage. We're not supposed to take it literally. This is not a a, a to-do list. If you're married, forget about it. If you're mourning, stop it. If you're happy, stop it. That's not what Paul is getting at here. But I think what Paul is getting at is our relationship to each of these things. Again, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from him. What originally threw me for a loop in our interpretive community this week, I was like, the marriage thing bugs me a little bit. Why would he say such a thing? Um, those who, uh, of you who are married, act as if you aren't. That, that seemed odd uh, to me. But then it occurred to me, sometimes our hope can become misplaced in good things. Sometimes our hope can, can be misplaced onto good things. And good things, good things, friends, can take the place of God. In fact, I think this is often what happens in our life with God. We, we begin to pray about something, right? A, a desire that we have or a longing that we have. Uh, Jane had mentioned these things before as she led in prayer this morning. Uh, a need or desire, something. We begin to engage God about these things and around these things. And, and as we're seeking these things and we're coming to God with them, there, there develops an openness and a closeness to God, a trust in, in God as we do these things. We draw close uh, to God as we bring that need to God. And then sometimes God answers, and sometimes, in whatever way God answers, whether it is in the way that we thought or, or another way, but there's an answer that comes about. But then what happens after that often is that the good thing that we've been seeking takes the place of God. The good thing that we've been seeking takes the place of God. And if we're not careful, the good can take the place of God, and then when that happens... that thing that was good loses its goodness because it's not in its proper place anymore. And so we we seek God for this thing. We become close to God for something that is good. God gives it to us and in some way answers those prayers. And then we begin to, oh yeah, this thing. And as we begin to focus on it, whether it be marriage, kids, jobs, money, healings, whatever those longings or desires might be, as they are elevated and they begin to take the place of God, those things actually lose their goodness because we're elevating them to a level that they were never intended to have. They're taking the place of God. Our hope is now resting on these things and these things turning out right rather than our hope turning to God and, and, and being rooted in God. And so this is the paradox, one of the many paradoxes of of faith, not to let the good become God. Chris Green is forward uh, on a book about the desert mothers and fathers says this, we have to turn not only from evil, but also the good as we have known it. We must learn what it means to say no one is good but God alone. So as Paul's writing here, in the context of something good like marriage, you can fill in your own blank. We learn to say, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him, from God. 
Not in these things that God might answer, not these things that might take the place of God, not in the gifts of God, but in God alone. He goes on to say in verse 30, those who weep or rejoice or buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them. Again, Paul isn't saying don't don't be happy, don't cry. Jesus cried, Jesus made a lot of lots of wine. Like he knew happiness, he knew sadness. But Paul is getting at the posture of our hearts, I think, towards the chaos of the world around the Corinthians, right? In the midst of a chaotic city like Corinth, don't ride the roller coaster, maybe is what Paul is saying. Don't let what happens out there, as you look at the crazy of the, 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 the Corinthianizing way of life, as you look at that, don't get up on the roller coaster, don't get down on the roller coaster, don't ride it. Don't get too up or don't get too down. As my grandma used to say, don't fret. Um, Corinth was a crazy and chaotic place and so is our world. And if we're not careful, our souls ride the roller coaster, don't they? They ride the roller coaster of what happens around us. It might be, our soul might be up one day because something we find favorable happened, but it might be down the next day because something else happened. The world as it is is not what our souls have been created for. And I think that's part of the problem is we try to make our home in the, in the way of this world and we just can't. It's, we're not meant for this world the way as it is. We've not been created for it. Our souls haven't been created for it. The world, I think, does violence against our souls. And so it shouldn't come shocking to us that we have to pray Psalm 42. Why are you downcast on my soul? Well, look at what's going on out here, right? Our, our souls were not created for this place. This world does violence against our souls. God, on the other hand, provides rest for our souls in this place, in this world as it is. And so find rest. In God, our hope comes from him. Rest is not signing off. Rest is not disengaging. Rest is a place of trust. It's a place of trust. It's a place we live out of because the source of that rest is God alone. Our hope comes from him. I wonder if we could just think for a minute, just as we sit here this morning, how restful our souls are. And this is not a condemning question, because as we've talked about already this morning, we're all going to be in different places, and depending on what's happening outside of us or inside of us, our souls are, are, are shaken, right? And so the question is, uh, how are we going to respond to that shakenness? Are we going to remain in God, or are we going to continue to hope in God, or will we be shaken by the things of this world? How restful are our souls? Are, are we anxious, or are we worried, or are we fearful? Are we hurried? Are we in a hurry to make things happen? Are we in a hurry to be a better version of ourselves? Are we in a hurry to get to God to love us more and to be more acceptable, maybe, to him? I don't know. The invitations to rest. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. We live in a world that does violence to our soul, but this is also the very world that Jesus enters into. 
And friends, this is the world that Jesus continues to enter into. So rest is available to us. God desires us to to live from a place of rest. And Brian, I'll invite you and team come up. We're going to, um, and and I just want to frame communion. Brian's going to lead us in a song, but um, I want to frame communion in this way because there is this continual need to return. This is why I love that we receive communion every week because we're returning again and again to confess and to say uh, that uh, my soul needs to hope in God. My soul needs to recenter on this place. In a way, we're remembering. We are, all the ways we become dismembered throughout the week, we become remembered as we come to this table. We join again to the person of Jesus. We join again to the heart of God.